It's December and to join in the holiday cheer, I'm sharing this Patreon episode with you all. If you'd like to go to Patreon forward slash The Violin Chronicles, you'll find extra episodes like this one and others. I would also like to just thank some new Patreons because you guys are making this podcast happen. So a very big thank you to Joanna G, Martin P, Sarah P and Lil. Well, it's Christmas, and as I know, a lot of you listening are in the Northern Hemisphere tucking down for a cold winter, but here it's hot. It was 42 degrees on the weekend. That's 107 degrees Fahrenheit, but but don't worry. That has not stopped us in Australia from having Santas at risk of heat exhaustion in furry outfits and the spraying of fake snow in windows. It's all a bit of theatre and spectacle, and let's face it, a bit of denial that we're not in the Northern Hemisphere. I went to a dance concert on Sunday and it snowed. It was foam snow, but it was still snow, okay? And now on the subject of spectacle, here is the story of a good one that involves kings, queens, ballet and Amati violins. So do enjoy this episode of the Queen's Ballet. Welcome to my first ever Patreon episode. And if you're listening to this, I'd like to say a big thank you for supporting the podcast by becoming a Patreon member. And without further ado, here it is. The year was 1581. On a cool autumn evening of the 15th of October, frantic last-minute finishing touches were being made to the lavish décor in the hall of the Petit Bourbon. Crowds mingled around hoping to catch a glimpse of the royal entourage or one of the many nobles or dignitaries who had come to Paris for the wedding festivities of the king's favourite. A buzz of excitement was in the air. This was the culminating point of the wedding celebrations between the 17-year-old Marguerite de Vaudemont and her now husband, the newly duked Duke of Joyeuse, or Anne de Bartonnet de Joyeuse. Yes, confusingly, Anne is a man. But more importantly, he is the king's favori, his bestie, his BFF. And for that reason, not only was he marrying the king's sister-in-law, but he would also receive a gigantic dowry from his new wife. Lands and titles were thrown in, and the festivities lasting more than a month and costing millions of écus were paid for by the king himself. Four weeks earlier, on the 18th of September, Marguerite de Vaudemont, the queen's sister, and Joyeuse celebrated their engagement. A week later, the happy couple, well, no one really asked Marguerite how she felt, were married in the joyful company of 10,000 well-wishers. If they were beginning to tire from all the excitement and emotion, then too bad, because now, for the next two weeks, there were to be 17 banquets to attend, and between eating, dancing, masquerades, races, more eating and combats, there were ballets on foot and on horseback, all attended by their 10,000 guests, and finally, on the 15th of October, For the grand finale of the wedding celebrations, the pièce de résistance was the spectacular Ballet Comique de la Reine, the comic ballet of the Queen. To be frank here, Marguerite was in fact a teenager, and she was probably fine with pulling an all-nighter and ploughing on through to party all the next day, or weeks as it was in this case, but I cannot help but feel tired on her behalf, because this ballet would last five hours, yes, five hours, finishing at three in the morning. Back to the Palais of the Petit Bourbon. 
The people of the streets of Paris were bursting with curiosity at the sight of a multitude of magnificent devices entering the palace for the ballet that was to take place. Rumour had it that it had cost the royal coffers over a million écus to stage just this one spectacle alone. Archers of the King's Guard and lieutenants were guarding the building from the inquisitive crowds, letting through only persons of rank. But if you were to slip through the guards, or sachet in as an invited guest, this is what you would see. The Palais du Petit Bourbon was next to the castle of the Louvre, and inside the bling was in full swing. Around the edges of the hall ran two galleries, one on top of the other, where people were seated behind gold-gilded balustrades, looking down upon the set on the floor below. At one end, on a raised platform, sat the king and his mother, surrounded by princes and princesses. Beside them were seated ambassadors. Around all the edges of the hall were staircases used for seating reserved for members of the court, reaching up to the galleries. Remember there was no electricity, and so, as the light faded outside, inside, a multitude of lamps and candles were lit, creating a dazzling effect in the room. The members of the court settled themselves into their seats. There was a murmur of voices, the swishing of fabrics, the flick of fans, the scraping of shoes, and the clinking of jewellery. The room heated with the crowd of bodies and the many torches surrounding the walls. In the middle of the floor, to one side of where the king was seated, is Pan's forest, complete with tree trunks, branches, leaves, and acorns all gilded in gold. In the trees were niches where dryads and nymphs would sit. The trees in the woods are covered in oil lamps and made like small boats gilded in gold, glittering like a thousand stars. To the other side was a cave-like grotto carpeted with grass and flowers in which the god Pan was seated, dressed in gold with a crown on his head, holding a stick and pipes. Made of gold, of course. Next to this is a wooden arch, outside of which were great clouds and inside gilded with gold and dazzling because of the dozens of lamps and candles that made it glow from the interior. From this arch, many of the musical pieces would be performed. The effect was breathtaking. At 10 o'clock in the evening, their majesties, princesses, princes, lords, ladies and ambassadors of foreign kings, seated in places prepared for them, according to rank, drew silent. We immediately hear music from the musicians hidden behind Siasi's castle. They play an overture with oboes, cornets, sackbuts and other soft musical instruments. One of the court gentlemen, dressed in silver cloth, his clothes covered in gemstones and pearls, has escaped from the clutches of Siasi and has been transformed into a lion. He takes from his pocket a handkerchief wrought with gold, with which he wipes his face, and then, approaching the king to warn him of the nefarious plans of Siasi, she wants to stop the gods from bringing the golden age to the kingdom of France. <gasps> In rolls an enormous gold and silver three-tiered gilded fountain because why not? With members of the court on shiny seats, among them are 12 naiads who include the queen and many of her ladies-in-waiting, singing a chorus. Playing the lyre, the lute, the harp and the flute, they sing a five-part chorus. They are accompanied by Girard de Beaulieu, one of the musical composers of the ballet, and his wife, who are also seated on this fountain playing instruments and singing. The ladies were dressed in silver fabrics with small tufts of gold and silk. Their heads were adorned with small triangles covered with diamonds, rubies, pearls, and other exquisite and precious gems. 
This may sound like overkill at the moment, but the French court had to show the foreigners that they were loaded and not to mess with them. At this point, ten violinists, we could assume they are playing on Amati's violins, dressed in white satin and aigrette feathers, enter, and the naiads and the tritons dance a ballet. They have to get out of the fountain first. I'm sure they managed to do this with grace and aplomb, avoiding any naked flame. This is an OHS nightmare. So the ten violins begin to play the first entry of the ballet. The nymphs and the naiads come dancing up to the king and his mother and start a dance that consists of making 12 different geometric figures, all different from each other, to the sound of the violin music, the likes of which had never been heard before. It was all very metaphorical and symbolic. As the dancers moved into shape formations, triangles represent justice, three overlapping circles, the truth, a square within a square, virtuous design, and three concentric circles was perfect truth. This dance was danced by 24 dancers, 12 naiads and 12 pages. Even though this is a ballet, traditional shoes were not yet used and the costumes were formal gowns. The ballet continues. Siasi freezes everyone with her magic and takes them prisoner. The ballet goes on for five hours with dozens of characters being taken prisoner and fighting valiantly to be released. Siasi trying to create disorder, and all of this done with incredible set design and over-the-top costumes, music, and singing throughout. After roping in multiple gods to help out and characters being kidnapped back and forth, Siasi finally cracks, loses her power, and can only admit her inferiority next to the King of France. In the ballet's finale, all the captives are set free, the gods and dryads and satyrs unite forces to attack her castle. Siasi has to bow down and swear her allegiance to the King of France, admitting that she was wrong and that he is almighty. Not bad for King Henry's ego. Welcome to this first Patreon episode about the Queen's Ballet and the Amati Violins. I hope you enjoy it. Fashion historian Dr. Emily Brayshaw. These are, you know, so important to, they're central to these events, like the music and costume are equally as important. And, you know, having the musicians on hand, the wealth of the instruments on hand, the skilled players, it all really, it's its not just for amusement. It's also, you know, really demonstrating um, this power of wealth and um, access to luxury and craftsmanship. And it's also something I was thinking too, it was quite interesting because they're sort of saying oh well you know she staged these great spectacles at a time when you know the country was in a lot of financial trouble and stuff but what she's also doing is creating work for artists for craftsmen for weavers for instrument makers for tanners who are you know getting the gut for strings and and the farmers who are using like the leathers and the wools to make the costumes forestry industry um, for the wood for these instruments all of these things so she's actually trying to support the economy in a lot of the ways too through these new creations of arts, textiles, you know, and even though um, a lot of these are 
the instruments are made in Italy, um, but there's also evidence of like a lot of the textiles coming from France. So she's supporting the French textile industries as well. It's like the when the government starts injecting money during yeah. the financial crisis. It is, it They're is, just, it yeah. is. You know, even down to in her, uh, the French ball ballet comique de la reine we see one scene there's this magnificent fountain at the top with like a whole bunch of people on the next layer and then the musicians underneath you know all of these different layers and the construction of that we've got carpentry Um, one of the costumes from that is um, we think of these so-called sirens sort of like mermaids with double tails so we've even got wire workers who are also being used in fashion too of the era so if you think of like the collars those huge ruffs um, they'd be supported by a device called a sepotas, which was like molded wire. And so you've got skilled wire makers as well and people with these kind of skills too, all coming together to create these incredible technical spectacles. Wow. You know? Yeah, I feel like the fashion had all this, um, it was even more complex than today. It would draw on more... Um, they had a lot of structure structures in their, they, in their they clothing. Did. Yeah, they did, they did. The dancers in this ballet are danced to the music of violins and are significant as they are the first pieces of music printed specifically for violin. The king had to impress upon the court and all the important guests who had been invited the power and might of the French monarchy. This would once again show that they had no money problems. Everything was hunky-dory. And to celebrate the wedding, of course. And then the, um, the ballet, uh, Comique de la Reine, that was his brother, right? I think uh, he, he died right there. I think it's eight... Um, yeah, 1581. 1581, yeah, because Charles IX is dead by 74. Right, so that would have been um, his, 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 his younger brother, brother who became Henri III. Mm. Yes, and he was king of Poland, of course. So that so there's a lot of influence from Eastern Europe. And that's maybe the period that is best known as the sort of pinnacle of the late Renaissance Ballet de Cour is, is actually under his younger brother, Henry III. Dr. John Genie. When you know, sort of the who delighted in a lot of a lot of festivities and lived long enough, let's say, to uh, to make them happen. So I think, yeah, what we see is uh, a growing environment. I mean, if we're thinking in the longer term of French uh, royal entertainments, by the time we reach the turn into the 17th century, we are coming to an environment where the French kings are becoming very selective about the kind of music they support. So that it's really only by the time of Louis Thirteenth and the 1610s that we get the famous 24 violins, the violins of the king. But in the decades before, you know, this is the seminary environment where the kings are building a sense of what kind of sound they like, what kind of musicians they like to have around, what kind of forces they like to have in terms of musical equipment. And so it makes sense that if we're thinking from the 1570s to the 1610s, it's a kind of golden zone where the queen is Italian-born, she has a lot of connections to Italy. Uh, a lot of the courtiers are traveling back and forth. And composers are doing the same thing. And so I think maybe this is a, a story of the, the Frenchification of the violin in the late 16th century is what, how the French court decides what it likes in terms of musical instruments. 
the ballet comic de la reine was Henry the third as his best friend called Anne de Bartanet I think the was a guy called Anne yeah and he was getting married to his to the king's wife's sister does that make sense his wife's sister uh-huh. so he's getting his best friend to marry his sister-in-law circle, right and that's when he like i don't know if it's him or if it's catherine that gets the balthazar the bourgeois to do this ballet to organize the ballet yes yeah there were a whole series of prints and the dance it was it's interesting because it's like this ballet but they're on the they're on the floor they're on the of the 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 petit bourbon mm-hmm. and they're in it's like a hall and then the people the spectators are sort of on the side looking down on them and so the idea is you'd make these like shapes and figures and that was the ballet and you uh they were the courtiers and they'd have these like incredible um, dresses and they'd have these like triangles and circles and squares on their heads in like diamonds and rubies and and so the whole um the way you looked at it was different so there, it would be people making shapes and you'd be looking down on them it's like almost like synchronized swimming yes i mean it's interesting because the the poet ronsard who goes who is with charles the ninth this is before the what you're describing it's seemingly one of the first he testifies to one of the first attempts to do this kind of ballet in the 1570s, so even before. Um, and the word that Isabel Is uh, pulls out of his testimony is bizarre, because he says the women got up and they formed a kind of military flank like a battalion. And then they began to move in bizarre formations uh, with bizarre movements. So clearly Ronsard is struck by the strangeness of this geometric approach to dance, maybe for the reasons you just described, that it's seen from 360 degrees from unusual angles because the Petit Bourbon was pretty tight actually as a, as a hall. So there are people kind of up the walls. So maybe part of the story of the development of this kind of, I like to think of it in terms of the way he describes it as like a military formation, that they're sort of tightly packed and that they then you know move in these geometric forms. He says it went on for, I think, about an hour or something, which also impresses what, us ballet? for, the, for this, oh, this, this particular one. dance yeah. of the women, oh, wow. which, um, you know, is a long time to be doing that kind of precise choreography. Yeah, the, the key is that for Ronsard in the 1570s, it was so new that he was struggling for words to describe it. So maybe by the 1580s, they're already sort of elaborating the form. You know, well, yeah. Build, yeah. And, and then they talk about ballets on horseback. Right. Because you're like, what, like, and you're thinking of a ballet today and they're like, how, how on earth are they doing this with a horse? But it, it's, but it makes, if they're, they're doing these geom- geometrical formations and this, um, they're getting all the horses lined up and then they're doing squares and shape and they're like, that, that was the ballet, equestrian ballet. Absolutely. And, you know, if you've, if anyone's been to Vienna and the Felsenreitschule there where they still do that kind of, you know, horses trotting in concentric circles but in opposite directions they create all kinds of visual effects that are very stunning and unusual plus just to you know say the obvious you have to imagine this with all the trappings that would have been you know horses would have been equipped with you know feathers and damasks and all bells and that kind of thing so i imagine it's it's pretty spectacular in terms of equestrian ballets it's using larger animals than humans and it's, it's even more impressive uh, and then the question becomes, actually, if there's music played alongside, you know, you, you need larger forces, right, to be able to accompany a spectacle of that size. So maybe the equestrian ballet, if it's accompanied by music, also is a reason to push for 
larger forces to make sure that sounds reach the limits of the room you're in or the space you're in because it probably wasn't even rooms necessarily yeah so the closest i've been to that is the easter show in homebush oh, of course, and yeah. um <laughs> the the youths doing a ballet of it's exactly the same yeah. and the motorbike the dirt bikes <laughs> Very, very close to Renaissance Italy. Yeah, um, it's France. equestrian ballet, you know, just reimagined. Um, <laughs> and then, well, yeah, so it's, it's, so what's really interesting is they have, you have the ballet like that to begin with, and then you have sort of the advent of the stage was a whole thing that was different. You separated the dancers from the people because before uh, the courtiers were part of it it was on the floor it was like you're almost in the ballet like the royal family was sitting on the floor right in front of them and then they have this big separation where you're up on a stage and you're elevated and the musicians are as well they're in a pit because before the musicians weren't really separated Mm. either and so you're as an audience you're further back so that happens a bit later on for ballet and then all of a sudden you've got someone in front of you and to just wear normal clothes and shoes, you couldn't see their feet if their feet were standing normally straight on. Like the way you just stand normally straight on, uh, you wouldn't see what their feet were doing. And so then they had to turn their feet out and that's the turnout of the leg in dancing. And that's where you get those. It's first position in ballet. You have your legs, your feet so sticking out. 90 or 45 degrees. Or, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And then... Uh, and that's where you get all these, like you, the first position, second position is you just um, step out. Third is when you come in and put your heel against your toe. And then fourth is when you put your foot forward from there. But you see that in royal portraits, they're always standing in a particular ballet position. So after I did that, I looked and there's, you know, like Louis Fourteenth, he loves standing like this, which is, that's yes. fourth position. Right. And, and it's the same for fencing. They have the same positions. Maybe the one just additional thing to add here is, is um, you know, to recommend the fascinating work of the musicologist Kate Van Orden, who wrote a book about war and music in Renaissance France. And it's all about the, inter- so the intersection of the necessity of learning how to master your body for both war and sort of like the pleasure of dance. And that often military drills in Renaissance France were dance drills of a sort. And you know, accompanied by musical instruments or drums, that kind of thing. Van Orden has shown the way in which the development of ballet and the development of, let's say, battalion technologies were really intertwined and that they were mutually reinforcing, right? The sort of, that if you know how to hold your body straight as a warrior, this also um, leads to a certain elegance of deportment in courtly life and that these things have to help each other so that you know you're, you're a strong, you have a strong core with good limbs that helps on the battlefield, but it also makes you particularly elegant in the court. And positions of standing, you know, the, the way you master the sword, where you put your sword, all those things, you know, it's easy to forget that so many of the people at the court were also full-time warriors, decreasingly so, let's say, over the 17th century. But in the 16th century, the French nobility is still largely a warrior nobility. And so they're often, they are, especially during the religious wars, they are out on the field. And so the development of ballet, I think, also overlaps, at least in terms of that Van Orden has described it with, um, you know, this cult of training the body, both for beauty and for strength in, you know, military and courtly affairs. Yeah, because the guy, this, um, the ballet was for the ballet coming to die, and he, um, 
he would go with his father every summer to kill Protestants for the, you know, the season. Right. (laughs) And then he'd come back and it was like the sport. Yeah. So he was like, yeah, they were fighting all the time. It's amazing that they... They they just weren't all dead, really, because if you think about, you know, no antibiotics and stuff. Well, I mean, yeah, plus a lot of them did die. I mean, that was part of the crisis leading into the 17th century was that, you know, the aristocracy was decimated. I mean, so in terms of the ruling class of the the kingdom, it was it was a it was a rough go for them let alone the medical issues. But yeah, just in terms of pure numbers, it was a weakened it was a weakened country it was by by 1600. So King Henry III had spent, well, a king's ransom paying for poets, dancers, musicians, fireworks, artists and clothing for his pages and retinue for this whole spectacle. You know, different types of movements. So if we've got, and it depends like what the techniques are. So we've got like instrument techniques evolving as well and, you know, things as you can talk about like lengths of fingerboards and lack of chin rests and these kind of things and different bow holds and also like little gambers, like small, all different sizes of gambers that sit on your lap or, or turn around. And I think it's it's a big leap actually. Um, well, these, these were like the royalty, but a musician wouldn't be wearing this. Not to that level of opulence, certainly not. But we do know that um, musicians and ordinary people certainly followed the silhouettes and there are a lot of innovations in tailoring in these eras as well. So you would definitely, um, you know, the musicians definitely had versions of these. But yeah, so a musician uh, working in the court would be dressed in a lot more complicated clothing than just a musician quite often yes and because what would also happen as well part of the flex of these insanely wealthy people is that um you know also dress your musicians up um delivery yeah in a way it was yeah definitely Um, their uniform Definitely. And this would be a little bit different, like from their day to day where it's kind of like, you know, our good old performance blacks that we um, that we have today. Got uh, You've got your everyday clothes that you practice in and then you've got your, your tails and your suits and things like that today. And even in some opera houses still in Europe um, that will be provided for the performers. So, yeah, we can see that they would be wearing examples of, um, you know, the fashions of the time, like things like in men's dress, for example. We've got um, a more sort of slender silhouette for men that's um, sort of becoming a bit more streamlined. So before that, we've got like those huge shoulders of Philip II and of Henry VIII, you know, and that massive Tudor silhouette, Mm. you know, where they're kind of like oblongs on legs, you know. (laughs) And and now sort of things are sort of slimming down for men, but women's clothes are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. They're just puffing Um, out. Yeah, they are. And even things like gigantic ruffs. You know, things like that, roughs, bodies, or which is another name for like stays, corsets, these sorts of things. So down the bottom here, we've got our gamba player and we've got our lute player. And the gamba player is playing one of the big ones. 
and it's held down very, very low. The arms aren't up high. And same with the loop player as well. Um, it's held down on the lap at this. What yeah. angle would you say that is? Yeah, very tight angle. Yeah, very tight angle. And the bow's kind of pointing down almost on a on a diagonal. Mm. So yeah, these are these are sort of quite interesting. For the ballet, they would be wearing these elaborate costumes. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, you know, they've got um, very fashionable style hats. You can see there. You know, in this in this uh, ballet comique de la Reine, um, in this book. Um, you know, so very fashionable dress. He's got uh, like the doublet with the little padded bombasted belly. He's got the separate sleeves. He's got what they call melon hose, which are like really puffed out shorts. And again, you know, this sort of extra fabric would possibly interfere from getting your instrument way up close to you as well. He's got a fashionable hat with a little ostrich feather on it. Um, he's even like, you can see a little pointy beard there, his moustache and his um, rough collar too. And our loop player actually looks like he's got some kind of mask on, which is kind of interesting there too. So that gives you an idea as well he's sitting down because it's quite a large one but he's also holding his lute at sort of a a similar looking angle too to the gamba player um so it's on quite a diagonal and um you know the arms are at a sort of slightly up more but at a similar angle too to the gamba player so yeah these are quite remarkable images for us and tell us not partly of the importance right so these are very of the instruments as well as well as how fashionably they were dressed here's another lovely image that we can see um, from that and it's got the male tritons they're called the the male mermaids if you will the mermen they've got their big tridents um, and again, we've got um, a gamba player and a lute player, a harp. And what's interesting too, that um, for them, they've got like the big tails um, that would have been made from wire, but they don't have anything on the top. They've got sort of the classical style, um, you know, Greek god beards. They're positioned to look a lot like the Greek god Neptune, you know, the curly hair, the big super buff chests so we don't know if the musicians themselves were actually <laughs> that buff right we don't know they're good like buddies <laughs> they really are like they give chris hemsworth in thor a run for his money and you know and even when he's got a little bare bum there <laughs> um but uh but the genitals at the front are covered with a sort of a modesty layer of what looks like seaweed almost or or f- perhaps fins but uh, again, um, we can see how the gambas being held is the same as the guy who's fully clothed in like the 1580s fashions. What's interesting there too is it's almost like the, there's like this ghost of the clothing. So even though he's, you know, got a bare chest, the gamba is is still being played as though he were clothed, even though he's essentially topless. So the, the ghost of these clothes are there implying that. Got this real impact of clothing on performance. And um, and did the Amatis make gambas? Yes. Yeah, they did. So yeah. I mean it could even well be one of their one of their gambas too. Uh, yeah, the Amati, Andrea Amati, the Amati brothers, like made a lot of um, a big range of instruments. 
In the ballet, Balthazar, the choreographer and producer, one of Catherine de' Medici's guys, explains that there are three different types of art forms. They are poetry, music, and staging or scenography. These were outsourced to specialists. You may be saying to yourself, this mixture of music, dance, theatre, costumes, and set design sounds very similar to opera, and you wouldn't be wrong, although opera wasn't really a thing yet. In Italy and France, poets and musicians would meet together in places called academies and think about recreating Greek theatre, incorporating poetry, dancing, and set design to create a total art form. This ballet is considered more or less to be the first ballet and is significant because it was the first time that song dance, recitations and processions were fused into a single artistic entity. It also became a model for other courts in Europe to follow. Yeah, because the uh, Charles IX instruments, they were made uh, when Catherine and Charles did their grand tour. Right. But I'm, I'd be, I wouldn't be surprised if those same instruments were used uh, years later in the Ballet Comique de la Reine because they were, you know, they fitted in with all the bling. They were covered with gold and decorations and it, that was, um, and they were this beautiful, this beautiful consort of instruments that the royal family had. And that, that's the thing too, like you don't just chuck it away. Like these, even though people do um, spend a lot of money on things in these eras, even with your fashions and your textiles, you'll repurpose things, you'll have gems reset, you'll have fabrics reworked and restyled and there's this sort of, I guess, much more like ideas of reuse because this stuff is so valuable that, yeah, once you've got this amazing set of instruments, you're not going to upgrade them. You've, you've got them. Yeah, so there's, there's also a painted violin, an Amati painted violin, where they think the the emblem um, and the motto uh, was added on later for um, Margaret. Uh, this is the St. Bartholomew Day's masculine. When yep. For that that. Margaret de Valois, de Valois, yeah. and so and the the motto on the side was um what was it from this bulwark religion stands right and so a bulwark is a like a um it's a, a wall on a ship yes for fighting and so it was very sort of passive aggressive <laughs> saying you know we're going to fight the Protestants. And we're gonna we're gonna write that on this instrument. Yeah, wow. And and that's an example of them already having an instrument, sort of repurposing it for the next generation of yeah, royals, wow. adding adding a layer mm. of decoration. What effect would have that had on the sound though? Like the paint probably not that much, but right. but it was interesting that they're putting these little political messages on there. Yeah, definitely. Instruments. And then they thought that the instrument was important enough to do that. It's yeah, statement. definitely. If you thought that these instruments are a bit over the top in the decoration department, to understand the mentality and fashion of the day, we simply have to look at how the rich and trendy dressed, and I think then we can understand the need for all that fanciness on the instruments. like fashion and layers and dressing and things like that. And so it sort of became a bit like a jigsaw, putting a jigsaw together because each 
body part was clothed individually. So, you know, you'd have like a, a stocking for each leg. You'd have like a pair of bodies, which would be like two separate stays. You'd have like each of the big sleeves coming on or the big decorative sleeves, a jacket over the top, these things. So um, silhouette moved closer to the lines of the body for men, but careful tailoring and padding helped exaggerate masculine areas like the shoulders, the groin and the thighs. And the stomach. Uh, and the stomach, yeah, <laughs> definitely. The masculine pot belly. Yeah, yeah. Um, but like men also loved accessories like earrings, pendants, feathers, embroidery, textiles. It's a real era of opulence as well for men. And was it colourful? Oh, yeah. Yeah, all sorts of different colours, anything that would catch the eye and pull together. And these, um, you know, techniques, particularly like slashing, lasted a long time. Um, they think that slashing actually came from the German Landsknecht army who would go over the bodies on the battlefields and take whatever clothes they wanted. Well, because clothing so expensive mm. to the victors go the spoils, right? And uh, slashing is a very quick way to make your clothes fit better. But, of course, it wow. then sort of moves across into becoming very fashionable so we oh, see wow. a lot of slashing in men's dress. So it goes as well. it goes from this is from a corpse to unfashionable. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Um yeah, and so by the late 16th century as well, like an early 17th century, um we've also got the prototype of the three-piece suit now. Right. So we've got this early prototype. So there's a doublet, a jerkin and hose with a cloak or robe over the top. Wow. Good yeah. luck playing an instrument with all that. It just seems daunting. <laughs> well, I guess that's why they sort of held out from the body a little bit. Yeah. You know, as as we see in the pictures. And it's, and it's probably protected them all these years as well, like because instead of rubbing. Against the neck or, yeah, yeah. In 69, northern Italy followed the Spanish fashions. Right. Yeah, because they were like aligned with Spain. So the Gonzagas kind of had more Spanish style of dress and was that sort of to say we're with you guys yeah yeah exactly exactly yeah right and and uh and so how would that have differed from the venetians for example uh the venetians um because i'm thinking of brescia who were part of the venetians yeah okay so the venetians um were softer and more relaxed had, they didn't have the farthingale skirts or the cone-shaped skirts, so the skirts were just kind of flowing. Um, Venice, again, so Venice was a republic. It was a very rich trading point, and fashion did its own thing. So I mentioned, like, the very blonde women, and mm. so there were wigs but also dyes at the time. The front section of the bodice was very wide and open, and there was um, wider shoulders and a lower neck, and this was specifically Venetian, and they were quite proud of it. They would have often a loose outer robe with loops and looser gowns, and these were connections and influences of the dress of the Ottoman Empire, so Turkey or ex-Byzantium, and that came via trade with Venice and the textiles from the east. Yeah. Milan was also under the Spanish. So they had a very Spanish style. So they would have, they would have, have had a Spanish, Spanish style of dress as well. And so the, and they were they were under Cremona was linked to uh, the 
court of Milan was the closest court to Cremona. They didn't have a court in Cremona. They right. just had a cathedral. Right. And it was Milan that they were connected to. So could would they have followed they, that Yeah, Spanish they would style? have spoke yeah, those silhouettes. Yeah. So then so what would they have been what how is what's what's a typical Spanish silhouette? So this is Elizabeth of Valois and she's in the Spanish style and so she's got like these open sleeves here. and her gown is closed all the way down. Like a lot of the time what they would do, um, so there's the cone-shaped skirts of the Spanish farthingale, but then she's got these open sleeves um, with another sleeve underneath, Mm -hmm. you can see, and they also um, tend to hang down there, so these big hanging sleeves. And the, the gown also closes all the way down the front as well. Catherine de' Medici commissioned some amazing tapestries that give us an insight into court life during the reign of the Valois. Italy and Spain and this band, so that's really important, but also French rule as well versus these other Catholic empires, so she's really solidifying that. That's interesting because the Valois tapestries that you were talking to me about, they're made in... The Netherlands, right? Uh, So they're Belgian, actually. But um, what's going on with those? We know now there's been scholarship done on them, which is really interesting. And they are now believed to have been commissioned by her for to be taken in 1589 to Florence by Christine de Lorraine as part of her trousseau. And Christine de Lorraine is Catherine de' Medici's granddaughter. And so, again, this is, um, you know, they wanted to get them done. They wanted to get them done quickly so they could get them, you know, packed up and sent in the trousseau. But also demonstrating Christine de Lorraine's genealogy, proof of her position in this royal uh, lineage, and they do represent sort of these a lot of these famous fates uh, that the Medicis were putting on and that Catherine de Medici hosted. But what's kind of interesting too is that they're not necessarily completely accurate representations. They um, apparently depict festivities in Fontainebleau in 1564, Bayonne in um, 1565, and the Tuileries, is that how you say it? In Tuileries? Tuileries, I don't know. I'm sorry, I speak German, not French. <laughs> um, in 1573. Um, and they also show the occasion of the um, the ceremonies of um, Francois d'Anjou's entry into Antwerp in 1582. But the designer of the tapestry pulling together a whole bunch of different designs from different sources. So We've got a little bit of figures used from the festival book of the Ballet Comique de Lorraine, from the whale tap- in the whale tapestry, for example. They've got portraits from Catherine's own realistic portraits that have been painted by Antoine Caron. So he was the court painter, and he also had duties of organising court pageants as well. So they had sort of um, sketches from him for the Valois tapestry, but also the workshop in Brussels, which was well-established in tapestry making and they knew could get them out fast, 
used patterns and decorations that they already had on hand in the um, in the Belgian workshops. So earlier tapestries would take about seven years, but because Catherine de Medici wanted these as part of the trousseau for her, um, you know, favourite granddaughter, she's getting them out fast. Yeah, they're, they're also sort of demonstrating the magnificence of Catherine de Medici's court as well. And even though, again, they sort of played a bit fast and loose with it, they were galleries of portraits as well. So they've got the full-length members of Catherine de Medici's court um, and they were life-sized figures. So that gives you a scale of these tapestries. And these tapestries are also done in, like, gold, like real gold, real silver threads, metallic threads. What they would do would be to, you know, wrap threads, wrap these gold and silver around silk threads and then weave or make cloth or tapestries with them. And if we think of these hanging um, on the walls at these candlelit balls and events um, in other courts, this richness really and the weaving and the size of the figures and the glittering images under candlelight, it's kind of almost like a reminding people of their presence Yeah. as well. You know, it's like we're here, uh, we're pretty rich, you know, uh, this is my granddaughter, she belongs to this, you know, lineage, you're not going to mess with us. And I find it fascinating how they had that wound, the silver and gold fabric wound over the yeah. the. the silver wound onto silk and yes. it reminds me of the technology for strings but that wouldn't come in for another 100 years but that technology was there and the weavers were using it it is it is and i i think it um it also depends like what you want the technology to do as well so these fabrics were quite stiff a lot of the silks were a lot stiffer than we think of silk today which is why um, decorative techniques of the time like slashing um, could be done because, you know, I guess it depends on how stiff these things are that they're winding this, this technology, I guess. Were they winding it over gut strings? I don't know. I'm going to have to look into that. <laughs> but, again, you know, this, this stiff, stiffness and it's also different like um, thicknesses of silver and gold as well. Yeah. And there is one of the tapestries in a corner. You see all these um, musicians sort of piled up on top of each other playing uh, gambas. And so even in this, um, these tapestries that are supposed to really impress a foreign, like almost royalty, um, they you see the, the place of instruments and stringed instruments. Like it's up there with all the oh yeah, it's, the good it's stuff. yeah. It it really is. It really is because these are you know so important to they're central to these events. Like the music and costume are equally as important. And you know having the musicians on hand, the wealth of the instruments on hand, the skilled players. It all really, it's its not just for amusement. It's also, you know, really demonstrating um, this power of wealth and um, access to luxury and craftsmanship. This is an amazing snapshot of where the Amati instruments would have been played and used at the time. I hope you have enjoyed this Patreon episode and a big thank you to my guests, James Beck, Dr. Emily Brayshaw and Dr. John Gainey. Thank you so much for listening and I hope to catch you next time on The Violin Chronicles. <laughs>